Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are bringing you the best minds in functional medicine, and I assure you today is no exception. New Frontiers is able to offer these deeper drill-down conversations with content geared towards the professional audience because we are proudly sponsored by two companies that I use in my practice every day, Metagenics and Biotics Research Corporation. A little bit about Metagenics. Their mission is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For, for, for more information, visit them at metagenics.com. New Frontiers is also proud to be sponsored by Biotics Research Corporation. The foundation of Biotics Research Corporation is innovative ideas, carefully researched concept and product development, utilizing advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques to develop and produce gluten-free nutritional products of superior quality and effectiveness. The advantages of Biotics Research vegetable culture base include biologically active whole food, consistent disintegration for proper assimilation, suitability for strict vegetarians, and improved product stability. Biotics Research emulsified nutrients represent a more cost-effective means of delivering nutrients than mycelized, dry, or oily preparations and are safely and completely absorbed. Biotics Research provides the best of science and nature. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I am Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Uh, and, you know, I'm really honored to be uh, speaking with Dr. Hillary Andrews today. Uh, we're going to be talking about vaccines today, folks. Dr. Andrews has really spent her entire career, actually, even as a student, thinking about vaccines and, and doing a really deep drill down into the science. Um, we are going to pretend we're in a safe bubble where there's no controversy and where we can dialogue in this topic as, as thinking clinicians and researchers. And that's really where we're going to address it. And Hillary's going to talk about, you know, what she has come to over her decade plus research into this arena. Uh, Hillary also, incidentally, Dr. Andrews gave me the most interesting bio I've received yet. So I just sit back and listen to this and we'll jump right into our topic. Uh, I was born at the base of the Canadian Rockies into a family committed to nature and environmental conservation. My parents raised me with a love of the earth and of animals, and it is to that end that I became a naturopathic physician. I graduated from National College of Naturopathic Medicine with academic honors and was voted valedictorian by my fellow graduating class. My profound interest in optimizing childhood health and nutrition led me to examine examine the topic of immunizations. I began exploring this topic in depth eight years ago, actually longer than that, Hillary, and soon it became a passion of mine. I recognized the importance of vaccines in certain populations, but struggled with many of the immunization practices currently in place, including the ingredients and manufacturing processes of vaccines, the one-size-fits-all approach, and the lack of pediatric development developmental consideration in the timing of vaccines. It soon became clear to me that there was a better way to administer vaccines, and so I combined the scientific data regarding vaccines, the science of the body, and my strong foundational knowledge of health from my naturopathic education to create a more optimal approach to infectious disease. Since 2006, I've lectured extensively on the topic of immunizations and have created several CE courses on the subject. Most recently, I began the most passionate job of my life, that of mommy. 
My, nat my naturopathic husband and I are the proud parents of an energetic, spirited baby boy. His birth has strengthened my determination to help doctors understand vaccines and safer ways to vaccinate. To that end, they can help parents create the happiest, healthiest babies on the planet. I hope that my passion for natural health is purely contagious and that I serve as an inspiration. Well, welcome to New Frontiers, Dr. Andrews. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yeah, and geez, what a beautiful bio. Oh, interesting. So, you know, as I said, we're going to just talk about this frankly today, you know, and really what you found. I mean, I remember for you from school, you graduated before me, but I remember you were already starting to do the training and I remember you were just one of the bright light sort of brilliant students at mm. NCNM. I absolutely remember that yeah. and I'm just thrilled that you're willing to jump on. So, um, years-long research you've uh you know you are you you absolutely you do think that vaccines are important for the majority of us is that correct i mean talk to me a little bit about your background and your thinking around it yes so we absolutely do know that vaccines have had some pretty profound successes mm -hmm. at reducing infectious diseases so with respect to the controversy of the efficacy efficacy of vaccines. Effic uh, vaccines are really actually very effective with a few minor exceptions. So that's a huge success. We, we, we know that MMWR from the CDC has published the yes. results showing from the early, early 19th, 20th century, pardon me, comparing infectious diseases at that time to infectious diseases now and of vaccine preventable infectious diseases. And those diseases have significantly reduced. We've completely eliminated one, <clears throat> smallpox. We're very close to eliminating polio from the entire planet. So, so in that way, vaccines have been incredibly successful. <clears throat> yeah. We're also having more and more. I mean, there's a number of things that there's more and more vaccines for infectious diseases. And so depending on which side you sit on, you would see that as a success or not a success, but we're certainly seeing more like that. We're also starting to utilize vaccines in the treatment of cancer, which could be very, you know, which may ultimately have a very profound effect on the treatment and ultimate cure of cancer. <clears throat> so clearly there's no argument here. A, around the power of vaccination, B, around the really remarkable public health feat uh, with, with regard to vaccines. Uh, Absolutely. Incredibly impressive. Incredible. Yeah. Great. But then we drill down to the individual and, you know, we sort of, you, you know, jump ahead to today. Uh, and you know, what we're doing, perhaps what, you know, what's recommended by the greater medical community today is, is what we might, you know, we might want to think about, might want to modify. So tell me about, you know, compare and contrast sort of your approach, your thinking around vaccines now or delivering vaccines to our pediatric population, um, this patient-centered approach that uh, you call it, uh, with sort of the standard of care. Okay, very good. So, yes, so um, e even though I want to acknowledge the vaccines have been hugely effective and um, successful, they aren't without their limitations. And I, 
the limitations are fairly outstanding, but I think with a few tweaks, we could make that those limitations, bring those limitations way down. And so essentially what I did was really look at the way we currently vaccinate in this country and actually for a large part around the world. And I found certain things that didn't quite resonate with me and decided to find ways to change that. So currently how we do vaccinate, according to the recommendations of the CDC and then state uh, and local public health agencies, is that um, there's a schedule that's um, published every year. Um, this schedule, this vaccine schedule is published through the CDC and it's those recommended schedules for every, um, basically almost every child born um, <clears throat> in the U.S. And, and other countries also have their own schedules, which are very similar. And um, it takes very little individuality into account. The schedule also doesn't take into account neurodevelopmental um, mm -hmm. factors and immunological factors into right. account. Right. And no individuality uh, except for a few very rare, you know, instances. And so essentially the way the schedule is, is almost every child in this country can be vaccinated, you know, according to this schedule that starts with a vaccine at birth. Um, and we, we end up giving a fair amount, I believe it's 47 doses of 14 vaccines in a very short period of time, you know, within a, a five-year period. And so looking at that and actually when I was in practice, really getting feedback from parents about this feels like maybe it's too much, maybe it's too soon. You know, we've all heard those cliches, too much, too soon. Uh, you know, I'm potentially worried about some of the, that there may be some negative consequences. I started really looking at um, evaluating vaccines on a more individualized basis and looking at um, the risk of the vaccine versus the risk of the disease. And in knowing that, you have to acknowledge that the vaccines, which is a medical modality, do have do come with a certain degree of risk, mm -hmm. as every medical modality does. So there's an acknowledgement of that there's some risk associated with vaccinating, and there's some risk associated with not vaccinating. And so then we look at each individual child, and we see for each of the different vaccinatable diseases, if the risk of vaccinating versus the risk of not vaccinating is greater. So what is greater? And part of how we understand that is to look at what also are the risks of those certain infectious diseases. Because many of the vaccines that we, or the infectious diseases that we vaccinate against really are diseases of susceptibility. So if we look at infections, we understand that, I think of infections like an equation. So there is, in order to become infected and develop an infectious disease, you have to have um, exposure and you have to have susceptibility. So it's both exposure and susceptibility that equal infectious disease. We know exposure alone does not equal infectious disease because there can be many people sitting in a room and some of those people in that room will get influenza, the flu, and some won't. And um, mm -hmm. if anyone has any experience with chickenpox or, you know, quote, some people do chickenpox parties, yeah. you'll know that a good 70% of those kids will leave that party not getting chickenpox. Right. And so who, so 
So we know that susceptibility also plays a role. And, and those susceptibility factors are actually very well, in, in many of the infectious diseases are, are, are very well studied and are out there in the scientific literature. And they're pretty easy. So we look at those, what makes a child more susceptible to infe an infectious disease give me, give me some than examples. others. Can you? Can you okay. just throw some out there? Yes, absolutely. So the, one of the easiest examples is Haemophilus influenza type B. So Haemophilus influenza type B is a bacteria. It has a, a name that makes you think it's a virus because in the early 1920s, it was thought that it might be responsible for the, the huge flu, the great mm -hmm. flu that we had. Yeah. It turns out it wasn't. But um, So Haemophilus influenza type B is a bacteria. And um, it is at risk of causing meningitis in the young. So kids over six months of age and under five years of age, it used to at one point, be the biggest risk factor for the, the, it was the microbe that caused the most cases of meningitis in this country. And so we developed a vaccine for it. But what we know about the risk factors for that particular guy is that lack of breastfeeding and exposure to uh, cigarette smoke are the two biggest risk factors for getting meningitis. And in fact, if a child is breastfed and there's no secondhand smoke exposure, they have virtually no risk of developing Haemophilus influenza type B. Oh, that's fascinating. So we can, it's so fascinating. So we know immediately who the at-risk children are. If mm -hmm. a child is exposed to secondhand smoke, if a child is potentially not breastfed, then we can say, you know, I can have a conversation with that parent and say, your child does have actually some risk factors that might make us feel that, um, the risk of the vaccine is less than the risk of contracting the disease because we don't want the child to get the disease. By the way, all of us have, have had hemophilus influenza infection mm -hmm. uh, because we know that by age five, 100% of people have seroconverted. So it's like a, it causes a little mild upper respiratory tract infection in everyone. We all get exposed. But a very, very, very small percentage of kids, less than 1%, kids who aren't breastfed, and who are exposed to secondhand smoke, their own natural immune system in their nasal pharyngeal passage is unable to clear that infection. And so that infection is then able to leave the nasal pharyngeal passage and enter into the meninges, the lungs, the blood. So it's the biggest things that it potentially causes is meningitis, septicitis, or pneumonia, uh -huh. depending on where it seeds. And, and so, so um, but we know the susceptibility. In fact, breastfeeding is so protective for it. Mm -hmm. um, so is vitamin A and things like that. So, um, so in other words, there are things that we can do if a person can't breastfeed to also increase uh, or reduce susceptibility to it. But that might be a vaccine where I would say, you know, the risk of this particular vaccine, because it's a, it's a medical modality that does have some risks, in a child that is breastfed and isn't exposed to secondhand smoke is actually incredibly small. So we would say in that particular case, we, that vaccine may not be needed for this particular child. And if a parent is, I always let the choice be the parents, by the way. So this yeah. ultimately, we educate the parent and they, all, they always get to make the choice because it's, it's a preventative thing. It's not like we're, um, the child is presenting with the disease. And so in that particular instance, that might be a vaccine that we could skip. Um, same with um, hepatitis B is another 
very great example, probably mm -hmm. the, the Listen, most common example that I see. Yeah. I just want to jump into one. I, I want, we're we're going to yeah. circle back to Hep B. I absolutely want to hear what yeah. you have to say around susceptibility. Um, but I just wanted to circle back for a second, just in case we don't jump to it later on. In vitamin A. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some pretty cool yeah. data around, you know, measles prophylaxis and vitamin A, but, and you mentioned it again for um, H influenza. So just thoughts on, on, uh, you know, vitamin A and its value. Yes. So there's a number of different nutrients that play a really significant role in, in helping the immune system work properly in preventing infectious diseases. So I'm going to sort of answer this in a roundabout way so that you guys really, so you really understand that. Mm -hmm. If we look at the vaccine, the, the vaccines that we vaccinate for, almost all of them, except for hepatitis B and tetanus, almost all of them enter the body through either the nasal pharyngeal passage or the gastrointestinal tract, right? So almost all of our vaccines that we, uh, that we vaccinate for are either GI diseases like hep A, um, rotavirus, polio, or their upper respiratory tract viruses like um, measles, rubella, haemophilus influenza, pneumococcal, <clears throat> pertussis, things like that. So if we can protect that area through natural immunity, then we have a humongous barrier for preventing infectious disease. And there are a number of nutrients that really support that. Vitamin A is one of them. Mm -hmm. It increases nonspecific immunity very, very well. And it's incredibly nutritive to the nasal pharyngeal passage. <clears throat> um, so the other thing is, is that vitamin A is really used up uh, during a, a viral infection. So influenza, viral colds, um, <clears throat> measles, rubella, we know that it used, the body, the immune system uses up a huge amount of vitamin A, so we'll see significant drops in vitamin A after a viral infection. If we can actually give that vitamin A prior to an infection, so, or even prior to vaccinating, for example, yes, then we can really, uh, we, we're giving the immune system already the building blocks that it needs and sort of the arsenal that it needs prior to that infection so that it can work at its optimal way. So that, that the other piece of what I'm trying to do is optimize the body's immune system and neurological system to um, pr both prevent infections, but also to potentially make vaccines more effective when we're giving them. Yes. So, and vitamin A plays a significant role in that, especially if we can do vitamin A drops. Mm -hmm. I really like vitamin A drops because they're, 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 you're, getting, you're delivering them right to the um, nasal pharyngeal passage so that you know, they're on the tongue, for example, so they're getting right into that mucosa, all of that, and then swallowing them, obviously, into the GI tract. The other things that can be very powerful is probiotics, zinc, magnesium, incredibly important. Yeah. So there's a few things and I can go over why each of them are so important if you want to go into that, but mainly because they play such a powerful role in either the immune system or our detoxification pathways. So um, you didn't, vitamin D I'm assuming plays is, is in this picture. Oh, sorry. Absolutely. <laughs> vitamin D is Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have like a little list that I get parents to do vitamin A, vitamin D, zinc, magnesium, probiotics. And then there'll be some other like things that those are sort of the ones that we would give almost everyone for the most part. 
and then some other things that we tweak based on who the individual is in front of us. But yeah. Perfect. Absolutely. All right. So let me just let me just back up. I'm I'm somewhat sorry <laughs> that I've already jumped into you know preparing the child because I wanted to back up and talk about heavy, <laughs> but I want but I want to finish this conversation first, um, and then we'll jump back. I guess maybe I'm just my my anal sort of structure self. Um, all right. So first of all, vitamin A. Now you're dosing it probably a heck of a lot differently than a lot of clinicians. So talk about that and talk about the form yeah. you're using. You're not, I, you know is okay. it beta carotene? What is it? Okay, so it, um, it isn't beta carotene, although mm -hmm. it could be, but um, I'm using an animal-based form, okay. and so I'm dosing it in drops. And you can tell and, me, you can go ahead and give brand, you can say exactly what you're doing. Well, usually I use Soroyles okay. or Biotics brand drops. They're usually 10,000 or 12,500 mm -hmm. I use per drop. and um, 10,000 to 12,000. Thousand, I point five thousand, depending yep. on which of the ones you're, and um, the Soroyal one is flavored, so sometimes it's sometimes kids like it better, but yes. I find like for newer babies, they don't the flavor is not as important to be honest with you, and so it depends on one if the parents. Me as a parent, when I was younger, I didn't give my child any sugar or anything sweet and stuff like that. So I was more prone to the biotics one, um, but um, other parents, they really, you know, they want to have that flavor, which I totally get. But anyway, yes. so the World Health Organization um, gives 200,000 IUs, a single bolus of 200,000 IUs prior to the measles vaccine or the MMR vaccine. Right. So that's a huge bolus, but they've shown that that is incredibly effective at preventing pneumonia and diarrhea associated with that vaccine. So I do it a little bit differently than that, but but do you notice that is a huge bowl of compared to what we might massive. think, right? Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. yes. Yeah, massive. a lot of it's us are like anxious about, you know, the sort of the rumors that vitamin A is a teratogen, and I know that has been somewhat challenged, but there's this this residual yes. anxiety. But you're right. I mean, the World Health <laughs> Organization, I've 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 read it and it's just it's it's cool because it supports what I think we've known and we were taught as naturopathic um, students that you can do this very short-term high dose bolus but talk to me about what yes so so and the other worry that we have a bit with vitamin a is that it's a, a little bit liver toxic so it, it it puts some stress on the liver so um it depends so for me what i want physicians to know is that we have some leeway in here we I've, ideally we want to get in 200,000 i use but how we get it in um, can be different because it's a fat soluble vitamin, it's going to be in there for a while. So if I have someone and they're either not going to vaccinate for a while or they're not going to vaccinate at all, but we want to get it in, then I might do something like giving them 10,000 IUs a day for 20 days, for example. Mm -hmm. Or we, if, if they need to get it in right away, then we would do the whole bolus. Or I might even spread it out more than that in fairly, you know, kids less than a year old. That in kids less than a year old, the World Health Organization gives 100,000 IUs. Um, and so I might spread that out where I was doing, because both of those companies give those high dose 10 and 12,000 IUs, 10 and 12.5 thousand IUs, but they also give a smaller drop dose, which is 2,000 IUs. So I might, in those particular cases, give 2,000 IUs a day for several months over um, a period of during flu season, for example. Got it. Got it. So, so 
the, the other thing I do is just for all kids and for my whole family is that we do 100,000 I use at the beginning of winter. Well, sort of the beginning, beginning, middle of fall, to be honest with you, like the middle of school season, say October-ish. Um, we'll do that. So we're getting that sort of bolus in there. Um, and dose. I might even divide Single that bolus. up. Yeah, I, I divide it I up. usually do, but you can divide it up. Okay. So depends, depending on your comfortability, it appears to be um, somewhat the same. Unlike vitamin D, which it looks like giving a bolus might not be as helpful. Um, vitamin A, as far as I can tell in the research, a bolus, it, we're not, we can get just as effective giving one bolus or giving drops. But sometimes I look at a child and I feel like they seem a little more fragile and I might then just do it in divided doses just out of an, a professional instinct that I have, mm-hmm. you know, how sort of you get that feeling. So mm-hmm. yes. So um, that's because medicine is, there isn't a one size fits all in yes. a way, you know, we also have to be clinically aware. That's sort of what's so great about, when you really understand how the body works is also being somewhat clinically aware of okay, what's going to ultimately be the best for this person, the instinct that I'm getting. Let me just, just one final question on vitamin A. So, you know, you just, you just pointed out that there's a really significant drop after illness in vitamin yeah. A levels. So would you um, redose them? Yes. So I have what's called a pre-vaccine um, nutritional uh, sort of thing that I go through and a post-vaccine nutritional. So, and then also a pre-infection and post. And for pre, for post-infection, the two things that I really, or during infection is vitamin, or the three things, vitamin A, vitamin D, and vitamin C. Okay. So really helpful. In fact, I think this is coming out of um, uh, OHSU, Oregon Health um, University. showing that uh, vitamin C IV, I think it's just going to be published, but I just received a pre-published information about it. Um, IV vitamin C significantly reduces pneumonia um, and a bunch of secondary infections for all ages in the hospital. So there's, there, there may actually be, it may actually become part of a protocol where people who are entering the hospital for infectious diseases actually also receive vitamin C IVs. Yeah. That's amazing. I know there was, I think they're following up on another, another study that was, or not, or observation that was made by a clinician recently. That, I know it's just incredible. That's incredible. It's, oh, in fact, I just, just as an aside, vitamin C IVs and shingles, when a person has shingles, shingles, shingles you can treat, you know, but mm-hmm. post-herpatic neuralgia is incredibly, yes, that's really the thing that we it's really, devastating. it becomes, yeah, it's very devastating and so while you can, there's lots of, you know, there's a cyclovir and lots of things to really get the virus quickly under control and different sort of nerve medications in terms of preventing post-herpatic neuralgia, that's where it becomes really difficult. But vitamin C IV has been shown to have a fairly impressive level of efficacy at not only reducing the virus, but also in its reduction or prevention of post-herpatic neuralgia. So I love vitamin C. Oh, that's amazing. So listen, let me just ask you a couple of housekeeping questions here. Can you get that um, vitamin C post-herpetic neuralgia uh, citation to me? Is that possible? 
Can you put your hands on that? And then I'll just. Yeah. So do you, are you talking about the one out of OHSU? Well, OHSU, you said it wasn't released yet, but you, then you talked oh, yeah, about it all the different. shingles. Yeah. Just, yes, just send I them will. over yes. and then we'll post folks. I will post these on the transcription page so that you can access this content. Um, the other question that I have, because I know everybody's thinking about it is what your pre and post um, nutrient protocols are and whether, um, you know, if people can reach out to you, um, your, okay. your public contact information will be there. Um, and can they access okay. them that way? Or do you have anything that you um, can sacrifice and we'll post them on my site? Just, we'll okay. just think about, think about how you want to do that because there are people interested in this. I, by the way, folks, as I mentioned in um, Dr. Andrew's, Andrew's bio, she does offer continuing education around this area. And you can see from our conversation right now that any of these questions I'm asking her could sort of explode into you know, 20 sub questions and we could go on one area <laughs> forever. I mean, this is a massive topic. And I, so I strongly encourage you clinicians um, to look into um, Dr. Andrew's training uh, since we are just, just skimming the service. Uh, all right. So let me circle back to, um, you know, talking about, you know, your protocol, like how you might, no, it's not one size fits all. So who, you know, you have a, a, a mom and, and dad before you and they've got their infant and what kind of, you know, how do you walk through talking to them about, you know, what vaccines you think are essential or what vaccines do you and how okay. you might space them out? Yeah. You know, yeah, go ahead. So with each, so if you recall, I talked about the equation that I sort of created, which is exposure plus susceptibility equals infection. Yes. So with each of the different vaccine-preventable diseases, I look at risk of exposure, susceptibility risks, and then the risk of infection. And then when I, I, if I do feel that a child's at risk for that particular infection, then we weigh the risk of the infection versus the risk of the vaccine. We decide... We, the parent, you know, we have a I have a conversation with the parent to decide that. This sounds very complicated, but the truth is this is minutes. You know, it doesn't take that long. Mm -hmm. And then if a parent decides to vaccinate for that particular disease, then we look at when, when will the child, number one, be at risk? So when do we want the child to, their susceptibility to not be there? Then when is it the most, given that window, when is it the most immunologically and neurologically appropriate? Mm -hmm. So, so with each, so if I'm looking at susceptibility for HIB, like I just gave the example for HIB, I might, the question I might ask is, um, is the child breastfed and how long do you intend to breastfeed? You know, and obviously just like how a child who comes in for their routine wellness visit, they would come in for a routine visit with this where I'm checking because a parent might be pretty sure they're going to exclusively breastfeed and then two months later are realizing they're not going to exclusively breastfeed. So, you know, it's, it's, it's changing a little bit all the time, but are they exposed to secondhand smoke? Are they breastfed? Were they born full term? Um, so I'll ask a bunch of these questions for sort of each of the different diseases. Is there What's a big the difference? What's the hepatitis C status? Is there a big difference with C-section versus vaginal delivery? I would imagine. Well, I don't, this is what we know about, <laughs> C-section versus vaginal delivery um, is that when a baby goes through the vaginal canal, so a baby is, is, is uh, growing, a fetus is growing in a completely sterile environment for the most part, like when it, except for whatever can get through the, 
placenta. And there are some things that can, evidently we have teratogens. But. Mm-hmm. When a baby is born, it is exposed to a number of different microbes, both that are fecal flora and vaginal flora. And that flora sets up the, the microbiome for that baby, right? So as it's going through the birth canal, it's taking a huge gulp of everything, all the bacteria located and, and um, fungus located in the birth canal. It's taking a huge amount of that. That is what's really setting up its GI, its GI tract and its skin for this microflora. So babies who are born via C-section don't have that. But that's okay because, I mean, it, that, so we always talk about what's ideal. And then we deal, so not every baby can be born by vaginally. That would be absolutely the most ideal. So whatever we can do to support that, it's the most important. Mm-hmm. Not every baby can be. So there's things that we can do afterwards if they can't be. So skin to skin contact is incredibly important. Kissing the baby, you know, just mouth to mouth contact, mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. And breastfeeding is because breast milk delivers the flora from the mom's gut to the breast milk. We used to think breast milk was sterile. And that the way the baby got the flora in the gut through breast milk was actually from the skin on the mother's nipple. We now know that that plays a very small part. But in fact, dendritic cells go into the GI tract. They take huge gulps of, um, of the microbiome. Uh-huh. They, through the lymphatic system, they carry that and they deposit it into breast milk. God, isn't that I mean, I can <laughs> give you a paper incredible. on that as well if you want. Yeah, I would love it. Everybody so would love it. powerful. So powerful. So here it is in breast milk. The mom's GI tract is actually now being given to the baby. And yeah. so whatever we can do to facilitate the health of the mom's GI tract, all of that. So, so right. of course, right. vaginal birth is ideal. And I uh, will often actually manipulate and try to make the vagina of the mom as healthy as possible before birth you know, with the expectation that she'll have a vaginal birth and the GI tract as well, because both of those flora is going to be exposed. The baby's going to get exposed to. So if we can set them off at the best start in life, right from birth, the other very important thing that a mom gives a baby is something called gestational immunity or passive immunity through the movement of IgG Mm -hmm. um, from the mom to the baby for anything that she has antibodies too she's going to pass those antibodies onto her baby and that can be very powerful it's one of the reasons why babies we rarely see full-term babies uh, because the, the, that gestational immunity is passed from 20 weeks of age on but in the last trimester they get the biggest inoculation of it um that's why we see we rarely see babies getting measles or rubella before age or chickenpox before age one, because that passive immunity passed from the mom to the baby is so effective mm. that it, and it's same with HIB, why we rarely see HIB before age six months and almost rare, almost never even before age one year of age. That's all because of passive immunity. And that passive immunity renders vaccines less effective. And it's why we have, we know that for sure with polio, right? So they really talk about how because that passive immunity is ready-made antibodies, those ready-made antibodies will often soak up the antigens in the vaccine quicker mm. than the body is able to then make its own immune library. Isn't that fascinating? So if we can wait at least a year right. when, those, when we know that the majority of that passive immunity is going to be gone, then, we can, then we're going to get the biggest bang for our buck 
with these vaccines. And in fact, now we know that vaccinating moms when they're pregnant, that, that's a way that we're trying to pass on passive immunity. However, it's starting to backfire on us because these babies are born with a lot of passive immunity. Then we're vaccinating them and the vaccines are less effective because they have passive immunity that's rendering the vaccine less effective. So we have to think more scientifically in terms of this about, you know, how we can get the best, make the vaccines be the most effective. So we're really, because that's, for example, pertussis, we're seeing the efficacy of pertussis reduced yes. since we're vaccinating moms. So. Wow. Right. God, isn't that interesting? Um, but yeah, we could make them more effective if we just change the timing of the schedule into a more immunologically appropriate, yeah. in a you know way. Yep, yep, yep. Give me an idea of what kind of a schedule you would recommend in general. Okay. I know that I know you're being extreme. You know, you're just very, very individualized, and I appreciate that. Yes. Give me the general. It's very, it's very individualized. But the, there are a few goals that I have. And they may not always be the same goals as the parents. So I talk about what my goals are, and then we talk about what the parents' goals are. And ultimately, we're going to do, once we educate the parents, do what the parents want to do. But um, my ideal goal is to not vaccinate before a year of age. It's to never vaccinate preterm babies. So we know that a study came out showing um, the risk of vaccines and preterm babies with respect to autism spectrum disorders. So we, so if we can wait and at the very least age adjust um, babies, but uh, I like to wait at least a year if I can, and that isn't the case for many. Mm -hmm. Immunologically, we like to wait a year so that that passive immunity is gone and so that the sort of TH1, TH2 switch is done, but there's many different switches going on in the body immunologically. Yes. Right. And also, and then ideally, and this can't always be the case, if we can wait even beyond a year to the second year, then we know that we get blood brain barrier, a bet that barrier mm -hmm. for certain things like aluminum that crosses the blood brain barrier very easily in young babies mm. and not so easily as we age. And so, because if we set up a cytokine storm, uh, then we may have risks, you know, for other things. And, and certainly aluminum has been implicated in setting up things like that. So, right. Um, so, so I, so we look at immunologically and neurologically, those would be ideal. We can't always live in an ideal world, but we look at that. And then I look at the different, uh, evaluate the different risk factors for each of the different diseases. So like, for example, polio and exposure, exp remember exposure plus susceptibility equals disease. Mm -hmm. Exposure for polio, even though people are really terrified of polio, we had, 30, I believe it was 37 cases of polio in the entire world last year. Wow. In the entire world. I mean, yes. that's how close we are to extinguishing polio. Incredible. So exposure is incredibly unlikely. Yes. Um, we haven't had. So, so I would say that piece of it, that piece, the exposure piece is, is um, you know, very low, for example. So I'm looking at each of those variables with that, with respect to that then, We'll look at which diseases a child's at risk for, because there are certain diseases where exposure is the risk. Mm -hmm. Measles mm -hmm. is so infective that exposure is, in fact, the risk. Susceptibility plays a much smaller role in that particular disease. Um, Chickenpox, where exposure, but you have to have exposure and the size of the inoculation, it, it plays a role. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so then I'll say, you know what, your child is at risk for these guys. And then some of them, like, for example, chickenpox, a parent may or may, say, may or may not say, I'm not afraid of necessarily walking through chickenpox with my child. So maybe I'm willing to delay that vaccine and see if they do, in fact, contract chickenpox or not. Um, or rubella, for example, which has been eradicated from the North Americas uh, since 2005, I believe. So they might say, I'd like to wait on that until my child is potentially prior to puberty, you know, prior to any risk of getting pregnant for a female, mm-hmm. things like that. So we talk about that and then we set up a schedule, a, a vaccine schedule. And the idea with the schedule is I want it to try to wait till the body mass also is as big as possible so we can set up a good body mass in the baby. Mm-hmm. So that the effects of the aluminum and other things in the vaccine are going to be less. And then once we set up a schedule, we count back and we go, okay, now what nutrients do we want to make sure that this baby has that will make them be as strong as possible? So that includes vitamin A, vitamin D, zinc, magnesium, probiotics. A lot of these can be given to the mom, so it'll be transferred in the breast milk. Mm -hmm. If I'm lucky enough to work with a mom before she gets pregnant, then we can do some of this nutrient counseling, you know, prior to pregnancy. Mm And so the, one of the big reasons I love magnesium is because magnesium out, or competes with aluminum for binding sites in the body. Mm-hmm. So if we can really saturate the body with magnesium, then we can, um, you know, aluminum has, is less likely to bind and then more likely to be excreted. Mm-hmm. Uh, then vitamin C also, which helps uh, with many of the detoxification pathways. And then I run a couple of tests sometimes. Yeah, the, the two things that I really want to know is I want to know what the spleen status is of the child or the baby. Mm-hmm. And often that's easy because babies are ultrasounded throughout pregnancy. So I can get the very last ultrasound and they'll tell me what the spleen <clears throat> status is. If not, I may ask, I do, I do ask for a parent to have the spleen of the child ultrasounded. And the reason is, is because the spleen plays a profound role in the elimination of strep um, and meningococcal and even Hib diseases. So it really filters those bacteria out of the body. Wow. Um, it does other, it does viruses as well, like mono and uh, things like that, but it plays such an important role. And I want to know it, it plays a role in all, even like um, infections that aren't vaccine preventable necessarily, but I want to know do I really have to worry about this kid if they were to get strep? Like how, I, I always want to be on it, but how much do I need to let the parents know I want you to be on this? Because in kids that don't have a viable spleen, strep is a killer. And so, so I do want to know the, the status of the spleen. Yes. And often we'll see that on an ultrasound. But some of the patients that I work with don't do ultrasounds during pregnancy. So that would mean I'd ask them to get an ultrasound of that. And then I'm more recently diving into, and I'm not an expert in this, so, but into MTHFR status and certain detoxification statuses with respect to autism spectrum disorders and other sort of disorders. So that I, right now we don't, we know that certain kids react to vaccines unwell and not in the best way, mm-hmm. but we don't know why we, 
but we do. So that hasn't been studied, unfortunately. And so I'm trying my best to sort of look at the research in a backward way and sort of to sort of take a look. And we know that kids with autism spectrum disorders tend to have MTHFR and something called COMT pathway dysfunctions or alleles that make their detoxification pathway less effective. And we can help that out with magnesium and vitamin C often. <laughs> so, you know, interestingly enough, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. it can be very easy. So which kids do I have to worry more about, in other words, in a way? Right. Um, so that we're putting kids the least risk for negative side effects when we ultimately do vaccinate. So it's putting it in a more, seeing vaccines not as completely benign as they're sometimes seen, but realizing that they are a medical procedure, that we need to put some thought into it, and that individuals do react very differently. And finally, I recommend against, strongly recommend against the use of Tylenol in any way, shape, or form uh, with vaccines. Tylenol significantly reduces glutathione. We know in and of itself it, it, there has been studies that show an associated risk of autism spectrum disorder with Tylenol. I think, I really think we should never use Tylenol in kids. Um, so that we have to find other ways to reduce fever, either using hydrotherapy, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and not using Tylenol right. at all. Part right. of the reason we brought in Tylenol is because we don't want is because we want the perception of vaccines to be like, oh, they're pretty benign, less comfortable, you know? So we don't want parents to exceed the crying, the pain, the fevers, you know, it, in order to, um, we're treating a symptom of that fever is showing that the immune system truthfully is working, right? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's seeing an infection and it's, it's working in the way and we're, that it's supposed to, and we're shutting that down. And so for me, it's more like letting them know, yes, you know what? Every, not everything we're going to do in my office is going to make the kid feel good right after. It's ultimately maybe for a better outcome. But yeah, I highly <clears throat> educate them on the use of or lack thereof of Tylenol. <clears throat> do you ever use glutathione? I mean, I know vitamin C and magnesium are both going to really help especially vitamin C and yeah. recycling glutathione, but do you, do you use N-acetylcysteine or glutathione? Did yeah. You, okay. So not glutathione. I haven't used, although I think we could, I use N-acetylcysteine all the time, um, especially in, as a treatment actually often. Um, um, but N-acetylcysteine doesn't taste all that good right. orally. So we'll mix applesauce, things like that. Sometimes I do try to talk to parents about <clears throat> Yeah. Um, if at an early age you can make things not like not worry about how they don't taste so perfectly sweet, kids can become a bit better at that. Although having said that, that's not always true. I've known many people who've been religiously good about not giving their kids sweets, and there comes an age at about age five or whatever when they go into kindergarten, and all their right. friends are eating much funner foods that it becomes that becomes very difficult. But as much as possible. But yeah, so NAC is a big Thing that all <clears throat> it's a big part of my sort of arsenal and you know there's like little things that I give parents that they can I, what I like to do is give parents things that they can easily pick up 
at a health food store or their local grocery store. Mm. So trying to make it as the one complicated thing probably that I recommend is IV vitamin C's sometimes. But otherwise I want it to be something where when my office is closed, I can quickly run and get it. Or at any time they can phone me and I can say, Hey, you can run and go get this. Because mm-hmm. my other favorite thing is, is Epsom salt baths because mm. it's a great way of getting magnesium in. And the sulfur is actually very good at preventing that one of the toxins produced by the pertussis bacteria. It's, an, it's a toxin-mediated disease. So the bacteria in and of itself doesn't cause the big symptoms of pertussis. That's why we can give antibiotics and kill the bacteria, but it's, the tox, it's a toxin-mediated disease. So that's why antibiotics are considered not effective in pertussis. But sulfur is a really good way to, both sulfur and heat, mm-hmm. really denature those toxins. And so giving Epsom salts baths, which give magnesium, so they help their smooth muscle relaxer for the <clears throat> respiratory tract. Then you get your, the kids are breathing in that sulfur, which is helping denature one of the particular toxins. Um, it can be really good. I use it as a prevention. If there's, you know, potentially pertussis around, just give them Epsom salts baths every night when you just put some Epsom salts in their bath every night. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's very easy, I want to make it as easy as possible for them. Perfect. That's fabulous. Um, all right. We've, you know, this has just been such a, such a great uh, useful conversation. So are you, you know, I know you're waiting until body mass is at a certain, a certain level as much as you possibly Ideally, can. And yeah. 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 And neuro <laughs> and immunodevelopment are, are, are happening and, and at a certain level of development. Mm-hmm. Are you giving vaccines administering, you know, one at a time? Is that your typical schedule or do you do a couple? I mean, I know, you know, there's vaccine <clears throat> combos obviously, but what do you just in general, what are you thinking about that process? Great question. So I want to give as many, as, as few at the same time as I can. So if a vaccine is available, not in a combo, and there are vaccines like that, like hepatitis B is available on its own, hepatitis A is available on, on its own, Hib is, pneumococcal is, chickenpox is, <clears throat> rotaviruses, then I would like to give it on its own, separated from any other vaccine. So I only ever give one vaccine How do you at a space time, them? if how, I can. How, how do you space them? Very good question. And let me just, there's, there's two vaccines that you have to give in combination. They're only available in combination. And that's measles, mumps, rubella. Yes. You can't give measles alone. You can't give mumps alone. You can't give rubella alone. If you're going to give one, you end up always giving three. And, and diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis. So a child may have no risk for diphtheria, but if you want to vaccinate them for pertussis, you're going to vaccinate them for diphtheria. It only, pertussis has only ever come in a combination vaccine. There's a very, very interesting history. The history of pertussis really talks about the whole industry, history of how the vaccine schedule was set up, which I probably can't talk about. We don't have time to talk about it now, but it's fascinating. But, um, well, we'll put your really contact. The kind of pertussis that we have. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. We'll put your contact. People, I know people will, will be wanting to reach out to you for sure. I'm sure it is great. We'll have a part two maybe also, Dr. Andrews, at some point down the line. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so you're so those two. What was the second part of your question? I well, forgot. Well, just like, what's the what's the frequent? How are you? How are you? How are you scheduling okay. these? So, so then, I w- ideally I like to hit them every. So we're looking at a time if we if a child truly is at risk for that particular disease. So say there is a child who we I really do worry is at risk for Haemophilus influenza type B. Mm-hmm. Right, I don't want that child to get meningitis. Yes. Then I'm going to vaccinate them. First time, usually I hit them at 
six months of age. I don't vaccinate them before six months of age. I know that they have, in, that they have passive immunity from their mom before six months of age. So I'm going to vaccinate them at six months of age. And then I want to vaccinate them again at a time where they're still going to have enough titers to be stilted in that protective realm. And there's very little research done on that. But usually it's between four and six months. Well, I'll give the second dose. And then I, after, then on, after that second dose, because I'm delaying vaccines, I can often give less in a series. I will often run titers five months later. Okay. If the titers are still showing high, I won't revaccinate. If the titers are not reaching that protective level, then I'll give the third dose. Mm. Okay, perfect. God, that's great. Um, yeah. All right. And then, so that's another useful, you know, just another really fabulous pearl, getting titers and then also understanding that you've achieved a level of protection. Do you follow yes. the um, ranges set forth by the labs? I do. Okay. Yes. Okay. The, the one, the one uh, infectious disease that doesn't have a range, unfortunately, is pertussis. And oh, that's because the protective titer range has never been established with pertussis, which is so frustrating. Yes, but we use right. it to just see. However, different, you know, with laboratories, I can at least see like, okay, I will tell you this. Kids that have pertussis have like skyrocketing protection for a much longer period than kids who have been vaccinated. You know, obviously, for most things, we know that natural infection may confer more permanent immunity than um, <clears throat> vaccinated protection confers. Um, but with pertussis, neither is thought to be lifelong. But um, you can get sort of an idea looking at um, the numbers. Each lab has a bit of a different range, <clears throat> where, you know, whether or not it's going to be it becomes difficult for pertussis whether or not it's protective. But they, what the lab can tell you is they have no protective. They have no protection. Okay. So right. at least you'll be able to know if they have no protection or not for pertussis. But for all the other ones, there is tighter levels, which are thought to establish protection. We also don't know, like, this tetanus is somewhat similar to that, too, in that it's never been established what the protective titer level is. But <clears throat> as but it has a better range that's better to understand. So we, so we do, when you get the lab back, you'll see that, yes, we can sort of say we may not need to redose tetanus because tetanus is for a long time has been one that we've redosed every 10 years. If you recall, you know, back in history. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> yes, that's great. That's terrific. Listen, we've got to, we've just got to wrap up now. Um, but I wanted to just get your thoughts on a paper you and I were chatting about, you know, before we, we started the podcast, yeah. the um, Mawson at all PayPal um, paper, excuse me, the yeah. pilot looking at the health of vaccinated and unvaccinated kids. I know lots of controversy around this. I do. It's an open access, folks. I'll put the I'll put the paper up on the uh, transcription site so you can go ahead and look at it. But what do you what do you what are your comments, Hillary? Uh, this is for years. I, many of us have been asking for a research paper that looks at vaccinated versus unvaccinated kids to fully understand if potentially there is a risk that vaccines may pose a risk of certain diseases that we're seeing, namely uh, allergies, 
autism, eczema, autism spectrum disorders, and other learning disorders. And this is really the first study. It's so, uh, you know, in a way revolutionary looking at um, yeah. vaccinated versus non-vaccinated kids and a number and a series, a number of different diseases. And so um, it came out in 2000, at March, I think around March of 2017. I'm just pulling it up so that I make sure that I give you the most correct information. But essentially it, it did, the study uh, did um, notice that there was in fact a difference, a, a distinct uh, difference in associated risks between vaccinated and non-vaccinated kids in a number of different uh, diseases. And so when they looked at the vac unvaccinated population, they saw that the risk of chickenpox and pertussis was higher than the risk of the vaccinated population, which we would hope would be the case. You know, we would assume would be the case. But in terms of the other things that they measured, which included um, allergies, autism spectrum disorder, um, all of those sorts of things, um, learning disabilities, they found a significant increase in the vaccinated population. So they found that compared to unvaccinated kids, vaccinated kids have a 30 times greater risk of developing allergic rhinitis. So that's significant. Yes. They had a five times greater risk of learning disabilities. They had a four times greater risk of both autism spectrum disorder and ADHD. And that risk was even higher if the child was born preterm or if the child was a male. Uh, so they, so they did see clinically significant increases in all of these, um, diseases that I just sort of talked about, eczema as well. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that was very interesting about this, and this is what was really, which also really stuck out for me, is that for decades, we've believed that vaccines have saved a huge amount of money in medical costs. It's one of the reasons vaccines are pressed so hard, because it's thought that for every dollar we spend on vaccines, we save, you know, up to $17 in indirect and direct medical costs. But in fact, this study found that kids who are vaccinated have more doctor visits, more emergency room visits, higher incidence of pneumonia, higher incidence of otitis media, even though one of the vaccines that we vaccinate for, the pneumococcal vaccine, actually, it was developed originally, one of its reasons for development was for the prevention of otitis media. Mm -hmm. um, so that we're actually seeing significantly greater doctor's visits and direct medical care costs with vac the vaccinated population than with the unvaccinated population. The vaccinated population has more use of antibiotics, more fevers. So all, so all of that. And so the re it's something to consider and take into account when we're now looking at those sort of measurements that we've used in vaccine successes, because this is suggesting, this study is suggesting that in fact, that might not be the case. It was a small study. There were 666 children enrolled in the study. Yeah. But it was a very well done study. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is that these same researchers then, because they noticed that the greatest risk for autism spectrum disorder was in preterm vaccinated children. This is a very important take home, I think, for us as docs. Mm 
even if we're going to vaccinate according to the CDC schedule. Yeah. And if they, so preterm vaccinated kids had, I believe it was an eight times greater risk than the unvaccinated kids of developing autism. If they took, if they just looked at preterm kids <clears throat> without being in, in the non-vaccinated population, they had no increased risk of autism spectrum disorder orders. <laughs> God, isn't that so, fascinating? So it's not just the fact of being preterm, it's being preterm and being vaccinated. So they, so these same researchers did a follow-up research study that's also published, which I believe you'll also put up, looking at preterm vac- vaccinating preterm kids. Because we don't study vaccines in preterm infants. I think there's one study that I'm aware of. There, there may be more, but it, in general, that's not usually how we do pre-licensing studies. And so, but we're vaccinating them, you know, right at birth, like we do there, just the CDC just changed this year, the very first time looking at birth weights and when we dose the hepatitis B vaccine. Um, But other than that, that's not really taken into account, but that baby is actually, uh, you know, if it's born gestationally four weeks, it's, it's, it's actually four weeks younger than a baby born at, you know, 40 weeks. So that that's immunologically that plays a very important role. So right. these two studies, both published by the same uh, groups, um, I believe they're through Public Health in Mississippi. I believe, um, yeah, had that had those findings, and that is because this is really the first time we're looking at vaccinating. Yes, uh, Jackson State University. Uh, looking at these two groups, this really is, as they call it, a pilot comparative study. It, it, it really is, and I hope, because the IOM had been asking for studies looking at vaccinated versus unvaccinated kids, that we see more of this, and we're really able to determine if, in fact, you know, this is just the first one, if, in fact, there is a risk, vaccines do present risks for more permanent lifelong injury, you know, including allergies and autism spectrum disorder. Uh, what I would wish they would have studied was food allergies, mm-hmm. but that hasn't been studied. But um, then maybe that will help us motivate us to to use this modality in a slightly different way. Right, right, yeah. In how you've been outlining it, which just really sounds smart and conservative, and you know, careful and individualized. How has the IOM received this? To your knowledge, have they? How 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 is the? That's a good question. I yeah. don't know. That's a really good question. This is, yeah, I don't know. Okay. I don't have a, I don't have a direct line, but I haven't heard. (laughs) The thing is, is that for me, this study was really big. And in terms of mainstream media, this study has gotten no, no traction whatsoever. Yeah. That's that's what's a little bit frustrating for me is that the four pivotal studies showing no research between vaccines and autism have gotten a huge amount of media play. And then this, um, that this study has uh, virtually gotten nothing. Yeah. And this is really the first, that the, those were association studies all only looking at vaccinated kids. This is actually the very first study looking at vaccinated versus unvaccinated kids. That's a huge study and it's gotten no media time, which is <clears throat> slightly unfortunate. So again, Dr. Andrews, it's really, I'm just so glad that we reconnected and you were willing to jump on my podcast today. Um, We're actually recording. I'm at the Institute for Functional Medicine's annual uh, conference. I'm here in 
lovely oh, Los wow. Angeles. Yep, yep. I'm going to hop back down into, into the lectures. We're actually talking about neurodevelopmental and neurodegenerative stuff. We're talking about the keeping the brain healthy. This, that's what this whole conference is about. So this is perfect for us to be oh. this incredibly important topic. Yeah, and thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, for everything thank we've discussed, care. we will put on the site. You will know how clinicians will, will give you a, an, an email to access Dr. Andrews and to, um, you know, attend the CE training that she's offering because, you know, you can clearly see she's a, you know, she's just a, a uh, pearl, mm. loads of pearls <laughs> for our community. So thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you for all your hard work. It's just been a pleasure to talk to you today. Oh, thank you so much. Much appreciated. Have a good conference.